Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th. And it's making me feel joy and sadness and anger. Definitely some disgust. Rose. And I think a little fear. But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14th. Get tickets now. Hey, you guys. The Other People podcast is offered freely. All episodes of this show, more than 500 and counting, are available for free. Everything is free. You can listen to all of it for free. There is another people app. That, too, is free. It's all free. Your support makes a difference. If you would like to support this program, you can do so at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. That's patreon.com slash other PPL pod. Thanks. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Dude, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just Hello, one everybody. Time. Hi, how's it going? <laughs> right. This is the Other People Podcast. I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. It's nice to be with you. It's nice to have Laura Vandenberg back on this program. She is celebrating the publication of a new novel called The Third Hotel. It's available now from Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. I am not alone in believing that she's one of the best fiction writers alive right now. Like, no hyperbole. I really believe that. And I, I'm, I'm not the only one. There are a lot of us out there that think that she has uh, like a real gift and is really doing the work at a high level. So it's really great to get, to chan- get the chance to talk with her about the new book, about her life, her writing life and about uh, the state of things. So that conversation with Laura Vandenberg is coming up. Speaking of the state of things, uh, you know, I'm, I'm recording this once again on a Saturday. That seems to be the way that I'm able to do this now in light of, uh, you know, job obligations and everything else. I tend to be recording on Saturday. So taking into account that today is Saturday, October the 6th, uh, 2018, and everything that that entails in terms of what's going on in the United States of America. So if you hear like fatigue in my voice or like a beleaguered tone, I hope you'll take into account historical context. I'm flagging this monologue for posterity. (laughs) Just look up what happened. 
at this particular moment in history on Wikipedia. You'll know why my voice sounds like this. But, you know, I also had a, it was like a long week, busy week. I got home late last night. I was tired. I was trying to, you know, process everything. So I took like a, I've gotten, like I take like two milligrams of cannabis, like a very, very small dose. <laughs> so I'm trying to like hit some sort of sweet spot where I'm, you know, it's like very slightly psychoactive, but not a problem. You know, I can control my narrative. Like, I just want to like take the edge off a little bit. Like, you know, you know how it is. It's been quite a week and there's just a lot going on. I needed to just have a moment. So I was just trying to like uh, relax, watch TV, but I didn't want to watch the news because of course that's not relaxing. So I started flipping through like HBO I think it was HBO, and I'm, I, I find that uh, Titanic <laughs> is on, uh, it's like on HBO, so I start watching Titanic, and really enjoyed it, like found myself being like, this is fantastic, and I think part of that was the, was the edible, but then part of it was just me trying to reconcile how bad the dialogue is in that movie with how popular the movie is and how much I was enjoying it. Like the appeal is odd is what I'm trying to get at. And then it was also, I think this, uh, you know, the storyline of the movie Titanic has this kind of, uh, it's, all, it's about class. It's about social class. You know, the people in steerage drown while the rich people get the lifeboats. And you know what I'm saying? It's pretty uh, like overt. But it felt uh, to me last night in a state of uh, like cannabinoid fatigue, like profound and then it was also me understanding that the appeal of the movie is in large part contingent on the performance of Kate Winslet in particular, but also Leo. I really feel like Kate Winslet is the reason the movie goes. Because her character is uh, the most interesting. But there's just, uh, you know, Kate is a a very talented actor. Leo's very talented. They're both very beautiful. And they're like in like the, what did I, I tweeted about it. It's like the gaudy beauty of youth, you know, where you're just like young and perfectly beautiful. And then they're lit to sort of accentuate that. They're on like the, you know, they're on the boat and the sun's going down. I was just like so into it. And I was like, oh, and they're doomed. Uh, I don't even I don't even know if I have a point other than to tell you that I watched Titanic while slightly baked at the end of uh, the week and at the end of this latest like terrible cycle of uh, Supreme Court bullshit that did not end well. And you know what? I don't, I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole. I think we've all had enough. Uh, we've, we've, I mean, for those of us who give a shit, we've all spent plenty of time contemplating it and talking about it. But all I can tell you is that, you know, taking like, you know, two uh, milligrams of cannabis or whatever and watching Titanic makes things slightly better. And the Celine Dion soundtrack, too. There's something just undeniable about it. That song. I was like texting with my friend 
I think I actually cribbed this from a, for a tweet. Like I should have given him credit for it, but I was like, yeah, like I feel like this movie is, is, you know, it's, it's telling me where we are right now. It's explaining my, it's explaining America to me right now. <laughs> and he was like, yeah, you know, basically we're at, you know, if, if Titanic is America in 2018, we're now like at the part of the movie where Billy Zane has a gun and is like chasing Leo like all around the boat trying to shoot him. Hey folks, if you are a writer, if you're somebody who's struggling to write, if you're trying to write a book but failing, if you're failing to write a book but wishing you could, if you've written a book but you're not sure if it's any good and you need to make it better, all of the above, you know what I'm talking about? I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. This is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond. Steve has been a guest many times on this show. I actually spoke with him on this very podcast about this very book not too long ago. You should listen to it. Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow is based on three decades of Steve's career, writing, failing, and trying again. Richard Russo calls it one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. This is a book that debunks the well-meaning but misguided myths that can hold us back from writing our deepest and most truthful work. It employs the same radical empathy that Steve displayed as co-host with Cheryl Strayed on the Dear Sugars podcast, and it will help you generate new work. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond. Available from Zando. So, anyway, uh, Laura Vandenberg was here. She came over to my house, and she sat down with me. We had a conversation, and it was great. So fun to see her in person and to get a chance to share that conversation with you guys. Her new novel is called The Third Hotel. It's out there now from FSG. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Laura Vandenberg. I started boxing last year and then, but only really got serious, I would say, this winter. Um, Why? Why did you get into boxing? Uh, sort of on accident. I was, um, I was in just a, I was just in like a difficult headspace. Uh, I think I was having, I turned in, you know, my book and I had done um, Third Hotel, the one that just came out and I had done copy edits and all that stuff. And so I was in, I was having a little bit of book postpartum. Um, there was some illness in my family, um, that had, had been, had been pretty tough. Uh, and you're um, ready to kick some ass. Yeah. And, and, and the, also the world's on fire. Yeah. Um, so, which by I, the way, that stress is not to be, yeah, not, you know, it's, it's not nothing. No, it's, it's not nothing. So all of those things kind of colliding, I was like, I need to do, I need to, I need to find a new dimension in my life for sort of processing this. Um, and so I got a class pass and just thought, you know, okay, I'll just, did somebody recommend this to you? No, I just, I, I, but I mean, I knew, I knew people who had boxed. I mean, it was not completely, you know, it was not completely like alien to me, but I had not ever, I mean, I, I'm not counting, you know, I'd taken sort of cardio boxing classes, but that's not, this is like, really you put counting. on like, did you put on like protective headgear? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm like just working up to light sparring. So it takes you, you know, if you've never boxed before, it's going to take you a while probably to get there. So I did a class pass and I would go to like, you know, I was like, everyone says that yoga is supposed to help with anxiety. 
um, which for me, it doesn't. I'm, I'm probably doing it wrong, but it's like the, the idea that you're supposed to kind of empty your mind and that's supposed to calm you down. For me, it's just, it creates this like blank space in which it, into which like anxiety can flood. Um, so I, yeah. And so I just took a boxing class just in the interest of like trying something different. It was one of the physically hardest things that I'd ever done. I mean, it, I thought it's a good workout. It's a really good workout. And like, I run with my dog. I thought it was in pretty decent shape. Is that it is a completely like next level kind of fitness. Um, and so it was really hard. I didn't know how to do anything. I didn't know how to wrap my hands. I didn't know how to jab. This very good teacher who just like was really good about kind of breaking it down, very, um, really good about the kind of technicalities of form. And I was immediately, um, hooked. Uh, and so I started coming back and coming back. And then this winter into the spring, I was going like, five mornings a week and getting up early to go and start a million working. dollar baby. Yeah. One-on-one with someone. And it was so, it was so sad. It was, I've been on kind of like hiatus because I've been traveling a lot this summer and have been on book tour, but it, um, it was so, uh, satisfying to learn and it's all craft, you know? I mean, there, I think there's so much synergy between boxing and writing and so many writers have written about boxing and, yeah, I mean it's all it's all craft. Have you um, ever read FX Tool? Isn't that somebody who's no, like? No, a- I'm reading Catherine Dunn's um, essays on boxing now, but I haven't read that one. I want to say I just it. I'm just like pulling like for boxing fiction yeah. or something, but like boxing writing. Yeah, and Joyce Killer Oates has written a nonfiction book about boxing. She's written um, a book about everything. She has. That's true. <laughs> I guess. Yeah, she's like really covered. Um, uh, the gamut. Um, Katie Kitamura has a, a really great novel about um, mixed, mixed, mixed martial arts, not not just uh, boxing, but um, about fighting. And um, yeah, so there's there's a kind of whole canon of like fighting literature. That so, but what's the synergy between I'm boxing and writing? Just the discipline, the craft. The... For sure, I think that um, I mean certainly the craft, you know. And I think in one like in a, when you read a great scene in fiction, there's the sense that it's doing one thing, but of course it's doing like 15 different things simultaneously. And even if you're tracking one line of movement, you can, you can sense those other elements working on you as you're, as you're reading. Right. And I think boxing is actually very similar. If you watch a professional fighter in a ring and they do this like one movement and it's so elegant and it's so powerful, but it's actually made up of these kind of 15, you know, micro movements that they have, it's a language they've internalized. And so they do it, they're doing it, you know, unconsciously and instinctively to some degree. Um, and I think that that's true for writing. It's like our own sort of style and sensibility becomes this internalized language that, that we then, you know, um, give shape to on the page. So I feel like there's, there's so much with a kind of practice of craft with the aim of it being something, you know, but don't necessarily actively think about, or don't think about like, like each step. Um, I, that to me feels like very, um, conversant with writing. Yeah. You should write about boxing. Now I want you ringside. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe one day. That would be so cool. I feel like I need, but there's also so much, there's endless amount also like writing. I mean, there's an endless amount of, um, there's an endless amount of stuff to learn about boxing. I mean, it is such a complex, I mean, both like the culture of it, the, the, the technical aspect, um, different styles and sort of philosophies of, of training and of fighting. I mean, it's such a, it's such a complex sport that some people have actually asked me because I, I tweet about boxing, Instagram about boxing a fair amount. If I would write something about it and, and, you know, I just, I feel like I need to know more about it. I I would, I would want to, 
yeah, be writing from a place of like deeper knowledge than I feel like I have right now. Well, it sounds like you're on your way. Uh, I'm, I'm working. Yeah, I'm working my way there. Have you sparred with somebody yet? Yeah, I have sparred, um, which was terrifying. I was going to say, because I want to ask you about fear. Like it's yeah. one thing to train and to like work on the heavy bag and like the speed bag or whatever you call it. Is that what you call it? Yeah. Okay. So that stuff I get. And then like also just all the cardio and like doing the cool jump roping and stuff. But yeah. then you get into the ring and there's somebody coming at you to like hit you in the, f- in the face. Like that's yeah. where I'm like, you know what? I don't want to. Yeah. Any- you're I don't like, want- I'm all set. I'm out. Yeah. But- yeah. I mean, I, the, the sparring that I've done was sort of, it was like light sparring. So it was, you know, you're not hitting, you're hitting with maybe like 40%, which doesn't still doesn't feel great if you get hit in the face at 40%, but yeah. it's, um, you know, it's, it's, it's not like you're, you know, you really are in the ring to, to train each other and to practice things that have been sort of theoretical on like the heavy bag, for example, or footwork drills to actually, you know, do them in there, do that sort of work in the intended context. And it is, I mean, it is intimidating and I, I'm new enough to, um, to even light sparring that, you know, my stomach does sort of like lurch, uh, when, when the round, when the round begins. But, um, but I think the thing, one of the things that I love about boxing, which again, I think is sort of very much like writing when you're really in a groove with a piece of work is that it feels like a sober way to exist outside time. Just to say when you're in the ring with someone, like there is no space to think about anything else. Right. And if you and if your attention drifts even for like a second, you will pay for it. Um so it's this great lesson in in like in just focus and kind of being hyper present. That's what you're trying that's what the yoga teachers are trying to get you to. Yeah. But you're like, No, I want it in the ring. Yeah. I was like, uh, that's <laughs> I'm a Gemini. Hey, I like to I like to, you know. Geminis aren't great at being being still always, but I don't, yeah, I don't think anybody is. It's a, but it's a, you're right, and, and, and that's like a discipline and a practice that you build. And I, I, I probably didn't stay stay in it long enough. But. Yeah, but it's like you know, but it seems like you're getting it in the ring. Like yeah. it's, it doesn't matter what you do. Yeah, it's that right. This has become, uh, yeah, fighting is definitely like a meditative practice for me in some in some ways. Are you aggressive? You don't seem like you don't strike me as somebody like I wouldn't look at you and be like boxer. But you know, sometimes people like are like, are you somebody who? Like if you're playing Monopoly, like you're competitive and you got to win, like, do you have that kind of thing going on? No, not really. I don't think I'm super competitive with other people. And I also, I mean, I haven't really played sports before, so I was never like on, I don't know, like a high school soccer team or something like that. So, I mean, I guess I don't really know for sure because I don't have a lot of experience, but even right with the board game analogy, and there are totally people in my family that are like ultra competitive and will get like really upset if they're, you know, losing in a game of Monopoly or chess or something. Um, but yeah, that's not, that's not really been my MO. I mean, I think I'm sort of self-competitive where I'm always looking at like where I am and how can I, how can I kind of raise the bar on myself. So I do feel like I'm competitive or ambitious in that way. Um, but not usually super competitive with other people. Like raise the bar in terms of like your personal conduct or is it like more of like raise the bar, like creatively and professionally, like, you know what I'm saying? Like, where is it yeah. all of the above? All of the above. Absolutely. You're hard on yourself. I'm going to do all, all things better all the time. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I can kind of be that way with myself too. Like I'm always tinkering and I can, uh, I can drift into guilt pretty easily. Like I'm not doing enough. You know, this is my fault. Do you get into that mindset? Yeah, yeah, for sure. That, what's your sign? Leo. Mm. I'm a Leo, but yeah. whenever people who like, have spent time around me, I'm one of those people who I'm like, I'm a Leo. And they're like, really? What's your rising sign? I don't know. I don't know anything about all that. Okay. I like. I uh, was just emailing with Karolina uh, Vatslaviak, yeah. who knows a lot about this stuff. Yeah. And she asked me to send 
my, uh, it was like my birthday and the time of birth. Hang on. Let me see if I can find this. And I know that I was born at nine Oh nine. Does that make anything different? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. But like, you know, I sent her that stuff and I was supposed to get some sort of, uh, I was supposed to get some sort of like, you know, report back on who I am. Well, that, um, that's, that's sort of a terrifying phrase, a report back on who I am. <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I do know what you're saying. I, I, I have solicited those reports for myself at different moments in time. Yeah, I mean, I asked about your rising sign because I think some people are, 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 are more like their rising sign or their front kind of facing self is more like their rising sign than their, um, their, their main sign. So I, I'm, I'm a Gemini rising, my rising sign is cancer, but I think I'm like, I'm like uber Gemini in a lot of ways, um, and feel less like a cancer, but I can also see, you know. So, okay. I'm looking at my, I have my report. Okay. (laughs) What's the verdict? It says planetary positions, sun, Leo in house 11, direct moon, Taurus Mm -hmm. in house nine, direct. Like, how do I know what my rising sign is? I think your rising sign is your sun sign. So I'm a Leo sun sign too. I'm a double Leo. So you're a double Leo? What does that mean? I don't... I feel like Leos are sort of assholes. It's like, oh, we're... No, I don't they're think They're always like, you're, you're vain and you're the lion. You know what I'm saying? I'm no, like... No, that's... Yeah, that's not true. I mean, my dog's a Leo and he... Well, actually, I do think my dog's pretty vain for a dog. <laughs> for a dog. I will say this. And my sister's... Like a lion. My sisters are both... Leos. They're born on the same day, seven days apart, August 18th. I'm August 1st. And I think my older sister and I both have this where like, if we pass a mirror, we will look at ourselves. Yeah. Like I'll always be like, Oh, that's me. Like part of it's just like, Whoa, I'm a person, you know? Yeah. But it's also like, Oh, do I look okay? Like I do have yeah. that. Maybe yeah. That's vanity. I, I mean, I think attention to sort of like exteriors and aesthetics isn't necessarily like, it's not inherently a bad thing. Right. As long as it doesn't become so dominant that it it usurps everything else. Well, I also sometimes argue that vanity is actually, it gets a bad rap. Yeah. Like, like you can can overdo it, but I think caring about how you look a little bit is a good thing. Well, yeah, um, or sort of like, I mean, you know, and, and I mean, there's a lot that's bound up if we just are thinking about sort of like cultivation of personal style. You know what I mean? There, there can, there can be, you know, yes, and, and it can be sort of superficial, but also like there can be something really powerful about cultivating personal style that you feel at home in, that it, it's, it, it becomes a source of kind of like, you know, it armors you up to move through the world or, or perhaps it feels like a creative expression. So I think sometimes those, you know, those quote unquote super, superficial um, elements contain more meaning than we might give them credit for. Yeah. Actually. And also just like self-care, you know, like, yeah. Uh, like watching out for like what you eat and how you drink and I don't know, like that sort of stuff seems good to me. Like how you can overdo it, of course. Yeah, but. of course. Well, most things can become toxic if taken to their most extreme, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So vanity a little yeah. bit is okay. Yeah. I think a little vanity is okay. Uh, I want to talk to you about Havana. Okay. That's where your novel is set. Yes. Did you, you had to have gone there. I did. I took three research trips. Okay. And yeah. you can go there now as a, an American. You can. Yeah. I mean, there. I went on a research visa, which is actually very straightforward and very easy. Um, it's a little bit more complicated now, but the short answer is yes. Okay. So why did you get it in your head? Did you know, like, I want to set a book there, or you're just like, I want to go there and check it out? or Yeah. So... Um, 
This is going to be a long answer just to prepare you yeah. uh, because there are multiple, there are intersecting reasons. So, um, so the third hotel is about um, a couple, Claire and Richard. Richard is a horror film scholar, which is my uh, secret dream job. Horror. Horror film, film yeah. scholar. Yeah. Um, like scary. Yeah. Scary <laughs> movies. Uh, and he is killed in a hit and run car accident under mysterious circumstances and had plans at the time of his death to go to a film festival in Havana and Claire ends up going in his place. So that's the, that's the kind of the context, but, um, it's my practice when I'm between projects to keep a thought log, which is just exactly what it sounds like a notebook where I record thoughts. Um, so I was writing. Okay. So let me stop you there. Yeah. Okay. Thought log. Thought log. It's just like a notebook. Yeah, just like a notebook. Is it yeah. in your phone or is it actual paper? Oh, no. It's, I do everything on actual paper. Really? I don't do... I keep a hard copy calendar. People oh, wow. look at me like I'm they're like... <laughs> like the far like, side? Like yeah, the cartoon? they're like, are you secretly 100? Or, and you just like <laughs> are well-preserved. I but, get that. I, I, don't, I don't have any problem with like people who are old school and write by hand and use hard copy stuff. Yeah. So I keep a hard copy calendar. I have a hard copy notebook. The only problem is, is that if you lose it, which has happened to me, you're like really fucked. Yeah. Yeah. If I lose my calendar, I'm like, I don't know. I have no idea where I'm supposed to be. Do you draft your books by hand? Uh, no. Okay. No, no, um, so not that, no. Not I'm, I'm a sort of, I'm like a note taker by hand, and sometimes you know I might write scenes or do some some kind of work outside the the laptop. But um, but no, I do. I mean, I do, I do. You know, type my type my drafts. Uh, but the thought log is just sort of a way of recording what I'm. Um, you know, what I'm paying, what I'm paying attention to and what's, what's on my mind. So how, like, what does this actually look like in practice? Like, are, are, do you set a time? Do you have to do it every day? Or is it just when the mood is there? You know yeah. what I'm saying? Like, I, I, I aspire to do it on sort of like a regular daily basis. That doesn't, sometimes there's a gap between aspiration and execution. Um, but I try and, I try and be fairly consistent about it. And there's not really, I'm not like, I'm, a, I'm not like, I'm just like a methodical person in general when it comes to sort of, you know, record keeping and, and, and note taking and stuff like that. So there's not a, there's a, not a set form that it has to take. It's just, I mean, if you look through it, it would just look like a jumble. Um, but do you so, have it on you? Uh, I do not. Oh, you do not. Yeah. Okay. I was going to have you read from it, but um, I actually probably would refuse to do that. <laughs> <laughs> but it's just like things that are like you're reading certain news stories, catch your eye, or you see something in the totally. street or details. Yeah. And so I had been writing about, um, I'd been writing about uh, horror films a lot to myself. Um, I had been writing a lot. I was sort of, this was a time, because my, my second story collection and first novel, they came out in fairly close succession. So there was a period of time where I was traveling a lot. Um, I should also say Claire, the narrator, is a sales rep for um, uh, Elevator um, Technology. And so she is, she travels just like constantly, constantly, constantly on the road. So... I wrote some of the the kind of travel sections, you know, in my notebook when I was moving through all of these transit spaces, like you know, airports and hotel rooms. And um, did you find a fingernail? In I, the did, oh, I did. God. I did. I did. I know. And so many people have asked me that, like, yeah. how did you come up with the detail? And I'm like, it oh, happened to me. God. That's, it was a, that's very like upsetting. my fucking nightmare. It was an. I mean, I will say it was an acrylic nail, which isn't like quite as. Okay, now you're bringing me back a little bit. I thought yeah. it was like off the off the body. Yeah, it's an acrylic. It's an acrylic nail. Um, 
it, but it was like sitting like right on top of the Bible. Uh, and it still was like, that's was, like a Lynchian detail. It was to me. very, yeah, it, it, it was very, um, it was very startling. So I, I made it a real fingernail. So I just made it like a little bit grosser. Oh, see, and there, ladies like and gentlemen, do. that's a lesson in how to write good fiction. Yeah. Make it a little bit closer. Make it real. Yeah. Make it a little <laughs> bit grosser than it was in actual life. Okay. So when you say you wrote sections like travel sections of the book in your thought log, does that mean like verbatim or does that mean you were just, you were just sketching? Just sketching. Yeah, yeah. Just sketching. Just, I mean that, for example, the fingernail I put in the thought log. So I was like, this one. Did happen. you actually press the acrylic nail inside the thought log like a flower? Or oh no? No, 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 no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I like wrapped it up in a tissue and threw it, like threw it away. Did you actually, okay. But you didn't have like the weird, like fear impulse to eat it. No, that's, I didn't. You wrote yeah, that. So once again, that. ladies and yeah. gentlemen, <laughs> and make it like a little bit grosser. A little bit grosser. Slash a lot grosser. A lot grosser. Um, all right. So like one of the things that strikes me, um, and, and I don't know, do you want to keep going on thought log that I cut you off? No, I can keep, yeah, I can keep, keep, why don't you, you were struck. Okay. So tell I'm, me. St- I'm struck by, yeah. uh, first of all, how good you are at this. You're really oh, good writer. You. I really, I think that you're, you're like one of these people where I'm like, she is doing what she should be doing. Like this is some, this is your gift. Um, and I'm also struck by, um, the like, uh, excellent visual detail, like for example, this fingernail and like, uh, the atmospherics of Havana, which mm-hmm. I've been there before years yeah. and years. I was there in 2001. Oh, wow. Yeah. So very different moment. Than, very like, different 2014, moment. 2014, 2015. Yeah. yeah. It was like, I mean, I don't know how much it's changed cause I haven't been back, yeah. but I'm assuming since it opened up a little bit, it's probably gotten more, you know, modernized or whatever. But when I was there, it was like, you know, Castro was still alive we weren't supposed to really be there. Um, and, uh, you know, all the old cars and it was very, very, um, yeah. rustic or whatever. But, um, anyway, it, like I, I know from having been there, like how photogenic that place is. Sure. Like few places yeah. like bring like that much to the table visually. Absolutely. And so it's like a feast, you know? Yeah. And so it, I'm imagining you now with your thought log roaming the streets of Havana and, you know, reading your book brings me back Mm -hmm. and you're just like, wow, there's so much happening there. It's a rich culture. Yeah. It's a very, yeah, it's a very rich culture. I mean, it's a very rich city. Um, and I'll, I'm going to pause for a second to sort of backtrack to like fully answer your question of how I got there. Yeah. If, if I, if I may, um, so I was writing about horror films in Thought Log. I was also writing. I was writing about travel. I grew up in Orlando, Florida, um, which we talked. We talked about that in, in our first conversation. Yeah, and I and so I mean, Orlando is a part of um, you know the state that has been really powerfully shaped by tourism in respect to like economy, culture, how the place is narrated to um, by outsiders, etc. And so that whole landscape has has long interested me. And then when the travel regulations to go to Cuba were loosened. Um, in like late late 2014 ish, uh, you know, all of a sudden Havana was in like every travel magazine, every travel blogger was writing about it, and I became really interested in the way that the city was being narrated and what what was being foregrounded, what was being left out, how the narratives might be sort of incomplete, who the narratives, who it seemed like the narratives were being written for. Etc. Um, and and so that whole that whole landscape started to really interest me too, and kind of went into the thought log. Um, but it also took me like quite a while to, you know, I had the, I had like a constellation of jellyfish is sort of how it felt in my imagination. But it was the the like what 
what could link these things together or how how could these things come to kind of live in the same space and there were um two things that bridged the world of like travel, tourism, and film. The first was discovering this movie called Juan of the Dead that came out in 2011 and was um, widely sort of heralded as Cuba's first horror movie. Um, it's a zombie movie. It's like very bloody and funny. Um, and, and it's like rich social commentary. And so that was a link between like the world of film and also place. Um, and then a uh, thing that was sort of a, a, a further bridge was I went to, um, I was at a talk and a scholar was giving a talk on consumer culture and contemporary Havana. And I realized at a certain point, because I've been reading a lot of film theory, that the language that she was using, she was talking about like lenses and gazes and so on um, to talk about tourism was so similar to cinematic language. And that was actually like a huge breakthrough and really gave me a lot of ideas of how, um, yeah, the world of travel, the world of film could be... So wait, say that again. Like, what's the connection you found? Yeah. So she was giving a talk on um, consumer culture in contemporary Havana. She was talking a lot about tourism uh. and the language, like the vocabulary she was using, you uh. know, talking about like lenses, for example, and using the word lens in the context of talking about consumer culture and tourism. Uh, if you're reading film theory, you're going to hear the word lens like a lot. So just realizing that there is overlap in vocabulary, Got it. right? And that there is this sort of synergy between those two worlds. Like that, that was a, a very important discovery. Okay. So that was good. I mean, that kind of brings me to my next thing. We can keep talking about Havana and Cuba because yeah. there's a lot to discuss, but um, it, you know, it also uh, hit me that you know you have been paying very close attention to film and you yeah. have a real preoccupation with it and yeah. there's obviously like the hitchcockian uh if that's a word yeah. uh you know uh influence and i'm sure there are other influences in there but um can you talk a bit about your interest in film because i mean you've already started down that that path but i'm curious to know like um, first of all, like what the history of it is, or if this is kind of a new development, like boxing sure, yeah. or, and, and then also, um, and, and this is how the book reads to me. If you were thinking of film structure and adaptation or possible adaptation, um, and you know, horror films and you know, the atmospherics are all there. Like, is this something that was in your brain as you set out to plot this and write it? Yeah. You know, I think one thing that the thought log helps me make a distinction between is what is the stuff that I think is just like neat, but doesn't necessarily have the kind of mystery and weight and resonance that I feel like is necessary for fiction. Like I, I love dogs. I met your very nice puppy earlier. Um, my love for dogs is like not complicated. You I, know, I mean? know this from Twitter. Yeah. I want to say you do a lot of dog tweeting. Right? I loved, yeah. I think dogs are like one of the best things that this terrible world has to offer us. So, but my love for dogs is like completely uncomplicated. It would not be, it would not be interesting in a narrative context because there's no friction. The story would be like, I love dogs. They're great the end. <laughs> um, so, so I think that, you know, the, the, the thought log helps me make distinctions between what is, what's interesting in kind of a, in an uncomplicated way and, and what's interesting in a more complicated and a more layered sort of way. And I think with film, I mean, I love film. I've been interested in film for a long time. I, I, you know, I love, I've loved horror for, um, you know, for, for a long time. So that's been a part of my life for a while. It was not so much a recent development, um, as, as boxing, but I also, I mean, I do, feel a lot of complicated feelings about the genre. I think in some ways, 
the genre kind of imprinted on me as a young person because you know it was the it was the only action genre that i was exposed to where women were regularly the 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 heroes and the protagonists like when i was a you know a teenager like a young you know younger teenager it's like the scream movies i know you did last summer that whole genre of the sort of slasher and the kind of that that um you know the kind of update of the final girl was like super in pop culture um so i yes but you know your lens changes to go back to the word lens um with time right and there are qualities about some of those narratives that you could read through a feminist lens but also you know i think there's the sort of subtext of the final girls having to essentially adopt patriarchal violence in order to survive and if you're looking at it through that lens then the story becomes a lot more complicated so thinking about horror and feeling like complicated mixed feelings about horror and in and gender but also one thing that i love about the genre um and I think the best examples of the genre are so powerful in this way is that uh, horror through these extreme dislocations of reality has a way at uncovering these fundamental human questions. Who can you trust? Who am I? Um, what ways have I denied sort of the, the truths, um, you know, personal history, national history, cultural history, and what's the cost of that looking away? Um, all of those kinds of instabilities in our lives, like horror, a really good horror movie is so brilliant at just finding um, like a new expression for a, a really like central human story. Can you give me an example of some horror films that uh, might have influenced you or that you just really love? Yeah, of course. Um, so for something that's more recent that I always think of when I'm talking about that, that sort of, you know, that assertion that the best horror films tell find kind of a new language and visual language because it of course it is it is on screen for kind of central human stories is i loved the babadook jennifer kent's movie the babadook which i found really terrifying um but it's have you seen the babadook i'm scared to watch it oh okay i, 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 gotta, I gotta get into it it's, it's always at night on like my netflix and i'm like i can do yeah. the babadook but i don't know if i'm ready for that ride i mean it's pretty scary and i think also you know you have a kid yeah um i think that my friends with parents or my friends who are parents found it like particularly frightening because it involves a mother and a young son and she's um she's a widow she's raising you know her child on her own and he's he is um a kid with some issues and so they're socially isolated and there's just a tremendous amount of pressure on them for various reasons and then they come to be menaced by this presence called the the babadook and the movie does this really brilliant thing where the 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 force of the haunting is so powerfully felt but the creature is never fully revealed so you know there's that there's that ambiguity of like is this an outside force that has been beset upon them or has their psychological weather somehow generated this thing called the babadook and the most frightening thing to, for me is not so much the creature, but what, um, how mother and son sort of turn on each other and what the mother character in particular becomes, um, under, you know, it, under kind of the, the spell of, of the Babadook. Um, so it's, it's so much like, it is this incredible film about trust, identity, violence, the limits of love, the limits of patience, um, and, and our ability to, to sort of turn on the, the people who are like closest and, and most important to us. 
um, it'll give you. You're give, really selling this. Yeah, to me. <laughs> you're like, I am never watching that ever. By the um, way, I like your phrase, psychological weather. I just want to point that out. Thank how, you. how is your psychological weather, by the way? Is it pretty uh, good? It's, yeah, I think it's. <laughs> Feels good? Yeah, yeah. I mean. 72 and sunny? Yeah, 72 and sunny. So, um, well, so far, so good. Anything else, like film wise, that you can point to? I don't want I, I don't mean to make you enumerate because that can be like onerous, but like, like I'm just curious to know yeah. about. Like, it, are there Hitchcock films that you like? For sure. I love Hitchcock. And also to go back to complicated feelings about horror, you know, I love Hitchcock. Hitchcock has been a huge influence for me. I mean, he's also like a world-class misogynist. Um, So it's, I've been thinking about that a lot. Like, what does it mean as a woman artist to have been so influenced by an artist whose like worldview, both in life and in cinema, was so rooted in, you know, misogyny well what's that line in the book where the somebody torture the women torture the women that's the secret the women and indeed like both on screen and off he was big on torturing women so um but i love vertigo was a really important movie for me i mean certainly like the birds psycho um i mean he was i think a really you know his singular filmmaker in in a lot of ways, but but I feel you know I feel complicated feelings about Hitchcock. Um, another movie that I really studied for structure with the Third Hotel because I wanted the progression to be, I wanted the book to become increasingly claustrophobic as you move through time, and I wanted um, the sort of spatial elements of the novel to change. And I rewatched Halloween, the original Halloween, several times and really like studied it for structure. It is like a perfect movie. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And I, I haven't I, seen that and I don't even know if I've ever seen it. It's so, I mean, I think like each, each, you know, subsequent installment gets like a, a little bit worse. Well, it's um, hard I mean, to, it's hard yeah, to sustain. The first, the first one is definitely as usual. The first one is the best one, but it's, um, you know, say for the opening sequence when Michael Myers is a child, the movie's 85 minutes long and no one dies for 55 minutes. So it's all dread. It's all anticipation. And you start in daylight in these sort of leafy, you know, wide suburban streets. And then as night falls, the use of this, the spatial possibilities become more and more and more and more constricted. And then there's this like violent unleashing in the last, you know, 30 or so minutes. And so the structure of it is really incredible. Um, and the sense of suspense, anticipation, dread that the movie generates, I think is also really incredible. Um, but I really studied it for the way it used space um, and the way that space was narrowed, narrowed, narrowed. Uh, throughout the film. Okay. So you have your thought log, you're studying films for structure. So you're outlining then? Are you jotting down notes? I mean, I'm, I'm just not like annotating. Annot- There's no system. It's just like, if I like think a thought and I think I want to remember that thought and not forget it in like 10 minutes, then I write it down. But like when you're watching Halloween for structure and space, you know, uh, space stuff or whatever, like you're jotting down thoughts there. Are you plotting? Like, are you pre-plotting your book? Are you thinking about the end? Or you know what I'm saying? Like, how much of it is there when you sit down to actually draft? Oh, I don't have anything. I have I, I have ideas. I have like matter, but I don't. I have jellyfish. I have the constellation of jellyfish, but I have very little in the way of plot. Because I think ideally, you know, a plot in fiction um, is is not just sort of a container for the jellyfish, right? But but it. it I'm sorry. I don't think I can carry the jellyfish metaphor any farther. <laughs> so I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna switch. Um, I, I was, I was there with them. I was. It's not a, it's not a, it's not just sort of a, a vessel for the ideas, right? But it gives the ideas an animation and a body. It sort of breathes them out onto the page. And so I think to find, you know, a plot that um, 
that can give uh, sort of physical shape to those ideas and to let them, you know, not just be sort of stated, but to really kind of exist in the world. Like that's the stuff for me that takes years and years and years and years and years. Yeah. Well, it's interesting too, because I'm, th- I'm hearing you talk about the process that you go through in writing your books. And, you know, I'm thinking about all this note taking that you do in your thought log and how you have these different areas of interest that are sort of percolating in your mind or, or constellating, <laughs> uh, undersea or whatever. Um, and then I'm thinking about, uh, you know, the critical reception for your novel. Um, like this one specifically, I guess I'll, like all of your work or could maybe be characterized like this, but it, specifically for the third hotel, um, the word layered comes up in multiple reviews. I don't know if you read them, but, I do. Yeah. yeah, I find I, that I find that interesting because it's like, oh, so now I'm seeing why it's having yeah. that effect on people. Like you're finding this crossover. You must be that must be gratifying in a way. It's so gratifying. <laughs> yeah, you're like you're like yes, I work so hard to try and um and you know there were drafts that were that were totally the like ungainly. Here's every neat thing I learned about film theory that the characters will like randomly say apropos of nothing, right? I mean, I, I definitely had those drafts where. Um, so I think that, right, to create, and I love, and, um, I mean, a hybridity, p- perhaps because of my sign, always feels very natural to me in fiction. So, I mean, I love work that bends genres, right, and kind of contains multiple worlds in one space. I love films that do that. Like, another horror film that I th- thought that did that so well as a girl walks home alone at night, um, which that's a very stylish horror movie. So maybe that wouldn't be as scary. You could watch that one. I think maybe I could. I maybe I, I think could, you could uh, handle it. It's like in black and white. It's very cool. Um, but the director uh, called it. Um, you know, it's a little tongue in cheek, but also it's true that the um, the first uh, spaghetti western Iranian va- vampire movie, um, and and it, it and it's shot in black and white, and it's like punk and goth and retro and and industrial and contemporary. I mean, it's so many things simultaneously. Also, I think is. You know, there is a real, like a genuinely feminist narrative in that, in that movie. So it feels like it's drawing from so many different pools to create this, like, completely seamless ocean of experience. And that. So many jellyfish. Yes. Yeah, so, <laughs> so many jellyfish. And that I feel like is kind of my, I mean, it's my cinematic ideal, but it's also my ideal in fiction where you feel like the writer has maybe pulled from these really different pools, both in terms of influence and reference, but also like what they, um, what they and only they can bring to the work, and they've created this sort of seamless space where all of these all of these jellyfish can live together <laughs> happily in harmony. Now I'm thinking about my sign and this this question of vanity, and and I'm also thinking like uh, from a writing perspective and a reading perspective, how much I like books that are about themselves and about their own creation. What the fuck? Yeah. Right. Yeah. That, that feels problematic to me. Well, um... <laughs> or it feels like an affirmation of my fear. Yeah, of the double you. You have the double me. Yeah. Just like can't get over myself. I got to break out. You mean like, like Knausgaard? Kind of, yeah. Yeah. That's too much. That's, but that's also like maximal. Like yeah. maximal. It's maximal that. Yeah. I read part of the first one and I actually, I liked it, but there's just so, there's just so much of it. I, yeah, I, you know. Life's short. I'm fickle with books. Yeah. I'm fickle with books. Like, a, you know, 
I don't know what it is. Like, I don't know if you're a, a, like a omnivorous reader or somebody who can kind of pick up any old book and just like plow through it. Yeah. Like, can you do that? Not really. I think, I mean, I'll pick up stuff and sometimes it's, I mean, sometimes it's the book, but sometimes I know it's me. Like it's, it's really, I'm not meeting this book at the right moment in time. This isn't what I'm in the mood for. It's not sort of like where my psychological weather <laughs> is situated, but right. I, I'll read, you know, if I read 20 or 25 pages that I'm still sort of like, eh, unless there's a reason that I must finish it, like a review or something like that. Um, and I don't actually review a lot, so it's, it's, it's infrequent that that happens. Um, the, you know, it, it, I really, I'll put it down and go on to something else. But if I get past page 50 or so, unless the book is, you know, unless it's like a really long book, um, then I'll usually stay with, with it. Even if my, if my love for it is, is sort of cooling besides like we've come this far together. Let's see this you know thing through. I mean? let's, yeah. let's like, I feel like I'm locked in. Let's, let's see this thing through. But because I know that about myself, I'm fairly particular about what I, what I will like go the distance with. And if you're working on a book like this, uh, this recent one and you, you know, you sort of, once you've gotten enough, um, thoughts logged, in your thought log and you sort of start to get a clear sense of what your uh, preoccupations are, like what the themes are that you want to work on with the subject, like what these disparate uh, jellyfish or subject matter um, are, mm -hmm. then I would imagine you start to turn to film and literature um, that can specifically feed that or answer questions. You yeah, talked, you talked, for example, course. about um, reading a lot of film theory. Yeah. Was this something you were doing prior to all this just as like something you like to do? Or were, were there specific questions that you had that you wanted answers to? And if so, like, well, who are some of these theorists that you were reading? Yeah. So, um, I mean, both. I had read some film theory just out of my own interest, but but for sure made it. I mean, that became a huge part of my reading life um, because, you know, because I knew I was working on this project and I just wanted to know more. I think a very Gemini thing is to like know like two things about a hundred things, right? To have this like very superficial knowledge of a lot of things. But Wait, like, maybe I'm a Gemini. <laughs> I feel like I'm like that too. May well, maybe, maybe you need a, maybe you need to have your chart redone. I think I do. Um, anyway, continue. But, uh, but I think that, so, so I, I know that about myself. And so the, the things that I like really want to kind of like intellectually invest in and emotionally invest in, I've like, like really sort of, you know, make a kind of practice of it. So I made myself a big reading list with a lot, like a certain amount of time a week to read, you know, read for the novel explicitly, whether it was fiction or nonfiction. Um, and I think that there, you know, one book, and this is kind of a seminal book, I think, um, in uh in horror film theory was carol clover's um men women and chainsaws and do you know what's amazing i don't i'm an anxious flyer and i i don't want anyone to talk to me on the plane like i just i just need to like i just need to be completely silent do you medicate i no i don't medicate you just like not even a cocktail nothing. yeah well i mean it depends on the time of day i might have like a drink or something if it's unless it's like eight in the morning but no, I mean, I'm pretty, yeah, I'm, I'm usually like more or less unmedicated. Um, and, but you know, it's like always when you're in that headspace, there'll be like some man next to you who just wants to like talk and talk and talk. Earbuds. You got to put on the, the headphones. Yeah. Sometimes that doesn't even, they're like, like tap you on the arm and they're like still talking. Yeah. But when you're reading men, women in chainsaws and it's like a screaming woman with a giant chainsaw on the cover, nobody talks to you. It's incredible. <laughs> That was like one of, that was like some of the greatest, um, and other books that have these like very, you know, horrifying titles. Um, yeah, I think people like look at, and they're big 
books too. So it's sort of a little bit more visible. Like people will look at the, at the title and be like, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to talk to the person. I'm going to take a pass on this person. person. (laughs) Weirdo in the middle seat. I feel like I, I would like to just like tear off the cover and like stick like a different book inside so I can keep, you know, I could keep, I could keep using it. But, um, I mean, but that cheap, you know, coined the, the idea of the final girl and, and wrote about it there. And, 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 and it's, you know, it's an, it's a novel. Uh, or sorry. Can you, can you, can you um, uh, for listeners who might not be familiar with the term, can you expand, expand on that a little bit? Yeah. So the final girl is the, the archetypal um, female protagonist in a horror film who survives at the end. So Laurie Strode from Halloween would be classic example. Um, Sydney Prescott from Scream. The Nev Campbell character. Um, yeah, the Nev Campbell character. Uh, yeah, so it's it's the it's the it's the lone female survivor who who defeats the you know defeats the killer at least in that in that sort of installment. But also, I think she does and she doesn't because when you get into the franchise, that she defeats the killer, but the killer is sort of un, unstoppable in some ways, you know. So franchises complicate that narrative a little bit. So, but Carol Clover's book is is about gender and horror and and about the final girl sort of theory but but about other other aspects of gender and horror too. You know, all this like uh intellectual sophistication and and all of this layered meaning in horror films. I'm I'm interested to know like having read all of this theory around this topic, how much of it uh is or feels like really explicit and how much of it is sort of there and is being parsed after the fact by interested viewers. You know, it's like I can, I can imagine instances where very interesting films about, um, the, the female experience or female characters or films that like speak to feminist concerns could be made by male directors who had no real idea that they sure. were doing, yeah. doing it. And then how many of them, you know, cause there are all, there are also, like really sophisticated social and cultural messages embedded into these films, as you talked about earlier. And I think uh, like most prominently in recent, in the recent past about um, get out, you know, and how this film like just hit so many notes and spoke to the culture, um, you know, in this really like varied way, you know, that felt intentional. Mm -hmm. Um, So can you talk about that? Like, do you have a sense of it? And especially like, I guess maybe in older horror films, but it's interesting to me that this the kind of pulpy, sensational genre would have all this action happening below the surface. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Um I you know, that's a tough question to answer. I mean, there's certainly, you know, there's certainly some films uh where the engagement with culture is I mean, it's not subtext, right? Like it's integral to it's integral to the plot. Um you know, when you think of a of a film like, you know, I mean, some people say, you know, The Shining is about um, indigenous genocide, right? Like, I, I'm not completely convinced by that. In like, I didn't in, know. I've never heard that. But yeah, inter- interpretation, but um, but it's it's uh, you know, I, I think particularly for films that are 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 classics. Um, you know, our, our classics, whether they're like cult classics or like really kind of firmly in the canon classics. It's, and I mean, this is, this can be true of literary works too. It, it, it becomes difficult to know at a certain point where like the director's intentionality be- ends and f- fan theory begins, right? Like I, what was that Kubrick, Kubrick's intent? 
you know, I mean, there, there's a lot of like projecting that we do on. Have you seen that documentary yeah, about the shining? What's it called? It's called like room five seventeen. Or... It was, a, it was like a quite a while ago. Um, so I don't remember it super well, but I, I'm familiar with it. Just like the level. I mean, Kubrick is a guy where intentionality is like taken to the extreme. For sure. But also t- intentionality can be misunderstood too. So, right. So just because he intended something does not mean, necessarily mean that the viewer is their interpretation of intent is like aligned with his actual intent. Does that, mm. does that make sense? Yeah. 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 Um, I mean, and people I, can spiral with his films. Like that's whole, what that movie's all about. Exactly. Yeah. Um, right. So this <laughs> is sort of like circularity of, yeah, spiraling, spiraling deeper into the, into the world. And, and I mean, his films do feel so sort of coded in, in terms of representation of like image and numbers and how this kind of visual um, nightmare logic, how everything drink, links up. But I, I think, just sort of more generally, you know, one thing to me that's kind of extraordinary about a movie or about um, a book is that I think in some ways it's like 50% text and 50%, you know, viewer slash reader, which is to say there was, you know, from my perspective, a lot of intention in writing The Third Hotel, you know, and I was making a lot of choices sort of very explicitly, particularly in the later stages where I'm sort of more attuned to the landscape and how it's being shaped. And I'm out of the the, like wild wilderness of the early drafts. Um, So of course, I'm making choices. And of course, I'm doing it with intention and thought and, and so on. But, you know, sometimes like you have that experience of a reader reading a book and they have a reading that's been really meaningful to them. And it's like not necessarily what I intended, but it's also like I'm not going to tell them that their reading is wrong because it's an experience that they've had. And in, 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 a, in a certain way, my intent is sort of like irrelevant at a certain point. It's a collaboration. Yeah. I mean, I imaginatively, think, right? Right. And I do think it is a collaboration. And so if you have a really, you know, if you have a really powerful experience with The Shining and there's a meaning there um, that you, you know, access, it, it's sort of, you know, the director's intent is, is not relevant necessarily. I thought The Shining was about me <laughs> as a true Leo. Did you? You no, did not. I'm just yeah, <laughs> I was going to say if you if you feel like the shining is about you, I have so I have so many questions. No, I, where where is the exit from the studio? Like <laughs> number one, there's most two. There's actually question. two. You can get out. Yeah. Um. So the other thing I wanted to ask you about with regard to horror is, and I, I guess maybe this this is sort of dovetails with mentioning Get Out, but uh, there are other films too. It's not just that film, and that film I don't think was the point of Genesis, but it definitely feels like there's been a moment like a good moment uh, in film history and in cultural history for horror mm-hmm. as a genre. Yeah. Like I've found myself being like, you know what? I really like horror films, especially in the theater, Yeah, which is an experience that I think is uh, sort of going by the wayside. You know, that communal viewing experience sure. in a darkened theater. Uh, a lot of people are just staying at home and watching it on their flat screen or whatever. And I get that, but there's something really fun about watching a really good horror film in the theater with other people and hearing the screams and then there's a lot of laughter in horror movies, you know, some sort of like anxious laughter that happens or, yeah. you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of comedy in horror films uh, or there often is. Um, and so I'm curious to know if in conceiving this book, you thought at all about that, um, the kind of cultural moment that we were in and also the profitability of horror narratives. Cause they are, they're like in the film world, they're cheap to make, <laughs> yeah. Relatively speaking, right. And they can be hugely prop- uh, profitable if they yeah. hit. So you know, like, uh, 
I guess being in LA, I'm, I'm proximal to all this, but, um, you know, you can, there, there are a million examples of films that were like, you know, micro budget and then went on to right. make like, the Blair Witch Project. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Or like Blumhouse, you know, yeah. like he's just raking in money. Cause like thing about it, like mathematically is that like, you, they don't all have to hit like right. one hit, like get out. Yeah. will finance like 20 duds or whatever. Yeah. So I'm just wondering like if you made any kind of like practical decision creatively about what project to work on next and said, you know what I'm going to try to do? I'm going to try to take this genre which is um, pop pop culture mm-hmm. and pulpy or whatever you want to call it, and then add, like you were talking about earlier, the kind of gravity that literature requires. Like, is that part of the calculus? Are you thinking about the market at all? No, I'm not. I, I, I can't... Um, I mean, I want people to read. Like, I love readers, and I want people to read my work, and I'm grateful every time someone does. So I don't mean that in the sort of like, oh, like, I don't you know, I don't care about readers, I don't care about being read, like, absolutely, that matters to me very much. But, um, but I can't, I can't make work from that sort of place where yeah. I'm thinking about the marketplace or trying to write, you know, to the marketplace. And, you know, there, there are probably some writers that do have a real knack for that. But I think also for novels, it's often just impractical because they take so long, unless you're writing something that can be written really quickly. You know, if you're going to write, work on a novel for five years, the marketplace that you thought you were writing towards could in fact be completely different by the time it's released. So for me, there's like, there's a philosophical sort of artistic blockade with that way of thinking, but it also like just very rarely kind of works in practice. But I think, but let's see, I would argue that like the book that you've just published is actually beautifully timed and and contains all these things that are happening in the culture like to keep you know to extend the jellyfish metaphor yeah like you're like like, like i think really um gifted creative people like just have that antenna and are very awake and tuned in and noticing what they notice and putting it in their thought log or somehow like filtering it into their creative work and they, you know, it's like a representative man or a representative woman. They're sort of like capturing this stuff for the rest of us. So yeah. that's kind of how I felt. And then like Cuba and uh, horror, I don't know, it all, it, to me, it felt perfectly timed. So I would oh, kind of be like, maybe you. maybe you did it by accident. Yeah, it was, I think that there was a lot of, you know, like a lot of serendipity there. I, it was not... Um, yeah, I, don't, I can't even imagine how I would have like like engineered it in a, in a super conscious way. Um, you know, I, I mean, I think even like the, I mean, the arguably sort of the most the thing that was, and I I did set. Um, I mean, I did sort of pin the setting in Havana in, in 2015 because I did want to the novel to be rooted in a in a recent moment, but a moment that's distinct from like the moment that we're in. You know, right right now. But, um, yeah, I think you just, you know, you've just got to sort of do your thing and hope it, hope people respond, trust your instincts. Right. And and there's only, there's also only so much you can control. Right. And when I'm talking about kind of serendipity and timing and all that, I mean, you know, a different constellation of factors and that the timing looks like really different. Right. And I, I mean, I have no, I've, you know, the, the, the creator has so, you know, so little control, um, unless they're, you know, they're, they're writing something that really is about some, you know, if you were write, doing something like a documentary on like the Me Too, Me Too movement, I mean, there's certain things, right, where you can, you, you are aware of sort of timeliness. And this is, this is a direct engagement with like a national conversation. Um, but I want to go back to something at that, because I think that that, you know, that is the sort of counter argument um, to horror, that idea that it's, 
it's not um, often they're not as expensive to make as films, and that it, they they can accrue this sort of mass popularity very quickly. And there's Claire has a conversation with a documentarian at some point in the book, and um, his kind of argument against horror is that it's it basically like you don't risk enough when you're when you're watching a horror film that you you know what people want which is is sort of when people are like doesn't it scare you too much to you know to watch horror and i'm like i feel like it's it's it gives you kind of a safe catharsis or it brings you to the edge of the abyss but then you have a kind of contract with the film because it's a film that you'll be brought back to shore by the end and the documentarian is kind of was sort of arguing against that that it's a it's it's um there's too much sort of safety in horror and so that's a yeah i mean it's an interesting you know is an interesting way of of thinking about it as a sort of counterpoint to it that um, that it, it it claims to be this genre that you know can frighten the daylights out of people or like frighten them into a new way of thinking about or seeing the world, but um, but does it does it really or does it ultimately work to kind of comfort or console? the viewer well yeah no it's an interesting I, I see it as like a ritual you know especially for people who are deeply invested in it and who kind of go to the theater to see every horror movie that comes out and like really get into it you know um it's like you 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 know what you're going to get to a degree and you put yourself through um the experience so that you can kind of have that tension and release and i i don't know i, I guess when i was a kid i went through like a very concentrated horror phase in junior high where I watched like everything. I just went to the back in the day, went yeah, to like the video the store. Blockbuster. Yeah, not even. It was just like the local, like in the strip mall in Indiana kind of thing. And like I just cleaned out the horror shelves. I watched everything. Mm -hmm. Could not get enough. And I later learned like that that is tied a lot to like the dawn of adolescence and puberty and like yeah. that age is like ripe for that kind of stuff. Transformation. Like, all that kind of yeah. stuff. Like blood and guts and bodily fluids and like all that kind of stuff. So uh, I watched it and then kind of like phased out of it. And then only recently, you know, have thought, I've been like, you know, I really like that experience of going to the theater and have, you know, just being scared shitless. Yeah. And especially like externalizing it. Cause I don't want like, there's something about having children. This might sound a little trite, but like having kids and then like having a heightened sensitivity to violence on film and like, you know, I've got enough fear. Yeah, no, of course. Uh, you yeah, your relationship to fear changes. Yeah. Yeah. So, but I do like, you know, as an experience to go to the theater and do it, you know, it's kind of coming back to me, I guess is my point. Yeah. Um, but before I let you go, because, you know, we've talked so much about horror and film. We've talked about Havana, but we have not talked about marriage, which factors <gasps> oh, yeah. in. And which is That's like, true. which is on the mind of this yeah. book in a big way. Uh, relationships. Yeah. You know, intimate relationship in particular how people can be married, uh, you know, engaged in an intimate relationship, but also like alone within that, all the weird dynamics that go yeah. into being with someone. And, uh, you know, can you talk about how that, like, where did that jellyfish come from? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I sort of think we're like all alone, even when we're together is my maybe general <laughs> worldview, especially writers. Yeah. Especially writers. Um, I think, I mean, I'm interested in, you know, I'm interested in sort of like the, the, you know, the, to go back, this maybe will appeal to you as a Leo, if you like thinking about the self. <laughs> um, I think Gemini is like thinking about the self too, for sure. Um, 
but you know how we sort of negotiate like public self, private self, and secret self. And I think the secret self is being, you know, the part of um, the self that we don't even really understand, uh-huh. where our sort of the like impulse to like eat the fingernail in the hotel room drawer comes from, where we have those moments where we're like. And you're sure that didn't happen? I'm positive For that you. didn't okay. happen. Yeah, I'm gonna <laughs> hold that line. Um, but with those moments where we we give ourselves a kind of like, what the fuck was that moment? Like, why did I do that? Why did I think that? Why did I say that? Where is that coming from? Right. Um, and you know, and I think in you know, it doesn't have to be marriage necessarily. That's just is a, is a married person sort of a, like a, a, an experiential context that I was working, you know, working in. But I mean, it could be you know, parent to child, between siblings, um, any kind of like intimate partnership or really close friendship. Um, I mean, I think there are many contexts in when that sort of you know that negotiation of public, private, and secret can become really complicated. Uh, and I, you know, that idea of like if the secret self is a thing that we don't necessarily always have conscious access to and thus can't really give another person access to in the way that we can give someone entry into like the private self. Right. Um, you know, what is that, what does that mean for a relationship? And, and, you know, in the case of, of Claire and Richard, like what happens if that secret space is maybe holding matter that is frightening in some ways. Um, and I think, you know, I'm also interested in this the kind of relational quality of it too. Like if there's something about your spouse that you really don't know or don't understand and find it out sort of in a very, at a very belated moment in time and are alarmed, like what does that say about your own gaze and the incompleteness of your own sight? And your own lens, your own <laughs> lens. Yeah. We're just going to keep bringing you back to jellyfish and lens and astrology. Fantastic. Um, but what does that say about your own lens and kind of the incompleteness of your own sight? And if you weren't looking like here, then where, 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 or were you looking? Um, so it's really disorienting yeah. to think you know somebody and then to find out like very sharply that you don't know them as well as you thought you did. Right. Or that, or that there, there are limits of knowing and you kind of, I think this is actually a line in the book that just to sort of summarize it, that you don't know the limits of knowing until you've surpassed them. Right. So often exactly what you're saying, I think that's so true that you don't know like with a sibling, for example, or with your partner, you don't know all that you didn't know until you're sort of out on that cliff where you're like, holy cow, I had no idea that this was going on or had no idea that they were capable of doing something like this. And I think when as someone who's like married to, you know, a really wonderful human, and I, I don't think of our I don't think of our relationship as being like dense with that kind of potentially toxic or, or frightening secrecy. But I think also the real life manifestation, it is not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, sometimes the limits of our knowledge and then surpassing those limits in some ways can you know, can surprise us in like the loveliest of ways where all of a sudden a person like reveals a new dimension or accesses a new dimension in their own self. And then kind of you're able to access that dimension in turn. And so I think the the kind of contract we make of, of, of the, you know, inability to know anyone completely is part of what can make a long relationship sort of dynamic over time. So it doesn't, as soon as this is over, I'm going to go in and tell my wife that I'm a double Leo. Yeah. It's, and I know. And <laughs> she's going to be thrilled. Yeah. <laughs> Is she into astrology or will no. she be like, what's that? Yeah. She'll be like, what's that? Yeah. But you know what I'm thinking of, like, just like projecting my own experience onto it, like as a father of two young kids and 
my son's got, uh, you know, health challenges. And so like that adds a layer of busyness is like how you can be in an intimate relationship with someone. And it doesn't mean that kids are the only context in which this could happen, but just like professionally, yeah, you can both be super invested and busy and traveling and dealing with stuff and have a lot of different demands on your time Absolutely, and you can be married or in an intimate relationship with somebody sharing space with them, seeing them every day. Yeah. And yet like sometimes some days I'll like be in the, I'll walk in the house and I'll walk through the kitchen and not like my kids will be like, ah, and I'll like pass my wife and I'll be like, Hey, she'll be like, Hey. And it's like, I'm passing her in the street almost. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, like- <laughs> no, I totally, I, for sure. I mean, I think I've, there've been moments in my, you know, marriage where I've totally felt that way, even though we don't have, we just have a big dog. So no, no kids. But, um, but I think with just the busyness and the travel and the kind of coming and going. And I think that that's also, again, in a long relationship, really of any kind, it's like people change over time, right? But if you're in this sort of constant motion and your eyes on that ball, I think it's very possible to miss the way people are changing. And then sometimes you, you sort of see them again after the change or the transformation has been completed and you're like, where did that person go? Um, and who is this person that's replaced them? And I think that that can be, that can be disconcerting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like, uh, there's a lot of mystery to it. Yeah. You know, you think like, there's a lot of mystery. Yeah. And you, I think uh, that's, that's the way it's always been. And I think maybe it can be easy for people to misperceive how it's supposed to be. I guess it depends on what you have to model or just like what your sign is <laughs> or what your temperament is. But you know, uh, you're never going to be able to fully know another person. And I sort of feel like, like, you know, just thinking about it out loud, I'd rather have the, a little mystery. I think who wants to know everything? Like who yeah. wants to reach some finite point where you're like, I got it. That's right. And I think the, the kind of the, the sort of opposite thing is it's like that, you know, is the answer to this. We need to somehow access like the secret self of, of the people closest to us. And I think, no, right. I mean, we don't know. I mean, privacy to me is such a, an important part of identity. Um, not, I think privacy is different than secrecy also, but privacy is such a, it's an important part of what makes us human and, and, and sort of privacy, respecting sort of privacy of the self and also privacy of the others is, um, I think is a, can be a really healthy thing in a relationship and that, right. Instead of to be sort of made anxious about the mystery to, um, yeah, to like, to accept the mystery and embrace it and move deeper into it and find beauty in it too. And I think that there is often a lot of beauty in it, but, um, but I think in the case of Claire and Richard, it also becomes, you know, I think that that is very much their story where they've both been, they've both been, even though they're married, they've been sort of ships in the night for so long. And then they arrive at this moment where they've both undergone kind of radical changes and they've missed the process. They're, they're sort of seeing each other like at the end point before he dies, but they've missed the process. So they, they, there's this feeling of like two strangers living in the same house. And then he dies. And then he dies. Wow. Well, but then he like kind of comes back. Right. Maybe. And you'll have to read to learn more. Yes. Uh, it's a wonderful book. You're a terrific writer of fiction. Uh, thank you. Yeah. I think you're one of our very best. And 
I appreciate you making the time. I know you're working on another story collection. I am. Yeah, I'm working on stories, uh, a collection that should be out in like 2020, probably. So a couple years. Okay. Horror? Like, what? Can you give us any hints? Uh, not horror. Although I will say, um, I mean, I think I'm working on kind of putting the collection together now. I I do think there there are a lot of like ghosts in there. Both like there's a haunted house story, so in some cases like literal, and in some cases sort of um, in the more ephemeral sense. Any other jellyfish you care to share? Oh, let's see. Um, a lot of sisters, a lot of travel, a little auto fiction, which is new for me. Huh. That strikes a chord with me. Yeah. <laughs> is there any podcasters in the, your the, collection? The, 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 yeah. <laughs> that live in LA and have two children <laughs> and a puppy. <laughs> Oh man. Well, it's good to see you. I uh, really appreciate you making the time and, uh, you know, you're going to boxing next, right? I'm going to boxing next. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah Laura, for those of you listening, I don't know if we said this explicitly while we were recording or if it was during soundcheck, but you actually asked if you could change her. You got to suit up yeah, to, to go I boxing with your my, niece. I got to put on my workout clothes. My niece is also a boxer, so she's going to take me to her usual gym and we're going to... Who started first? Uh, I think we started around the same time. I'll have to ask her, but I feel like she started sometime last year. Okay. You know, like I, I used to, uh, just to bring this full circle, I, I used to go to a yoga class that Gina Gershon would go to. And then I want to say I read something about her and how she was uh, sparring partners with Bob Dylan. Really? That's ran- incredible. Like random. Like wow. she's a boxer and I guess Bob Dylan likes to box. Yeah. <laughs> see it in his yeah i can see that too yeah. in a weird way so maybe at the gym you will see bob dylan yeah uh, you are here in la i'll so. keep an eye out all right well it's great to see you thank you so much for having me on okay that's laura vandenberg what do you think of that her new novel is called the third hotel it is out there now from farrar strauss and Giroux. laura vandenberg the third hotel go get your copy read this novel it's so good she's so good at it her website is lauravandenberg.com. Her Twitter handle is at LVandenberg. The Third Hotel. Thanks to Kill Rockstars and the band Stereo Total, as always, for the theme song music. Thank you to the band Tiger in My Tank for the interstitial music. That's right, it's Tiger in My Tank. I made the official correction last week, but I'll do it again. The album is called Cigarette Royalty. The band is called Tiger in My Tank. I stand corrected. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I apologize. Uh, if you want to write to me, the email address is letters at otherppl.com. If you want to support the show, patreon.com slash otherpplpod. If, uh, what else? Oh, if you want to get the app, the Other People app, that's free. Go get it wherever you get your apps. Get the Other People app on your phone. You can look at it. You can touch it. You can uh, look, say to yourself, I have this app. <laughs> you know what I mean. I like that Laura Vandenberg boxes. I want you to know, I can't remember, did we talk about this? She left my house and went straight to go boxing. With, like, I think her niece or something. She's not fucking around. She's here to fight. I I was thinking about something similar this morning, unrelated. Like, I did not have my conversation with Laura Vandenberg in my brain. I was actually driving uh, past Camp Pendleton as I was coming home from taking Twiggy to see her uh, Marine Corps dog trainer. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I need that. I never tested myself. Like, I'm, I'm, too, I'm too soft. I need to start boxing. I need to box Laura Vandenberg, get my ass kicked. Find some humility and some toughness. 
need to do, uh, what is it? CrossFit. <laughs> need to join a fitness club. I need to, need to join the SEALs. I need to go through Navy SEAL training. Just see if I can, can I make it? Because it's not the guys that are super ripped, you know, right? Isn't that what they say? Like, if you look at the picture of the Navy SEALs, a lot of them are kind of schlubby. They just, uh, can tolerate insane abuse, like physical and mental abuse. They don't fold. Like 90, what is it, like 99% of people can't make it? Maybe I could. I do have a high pain tolerance. Like physical pain. I don't know about like mental pain or like psychological pain. So, anyway, long day, long Saturday, long week, long three weeks, long two years, long life, long presidency, long experience. Nothing lasts. That's nice to think about. In some respects, that's also awful to think about. Ah. <laughs> uh. I feel like I should have a cup of coffee or something, even though it's nighttime. I feel like I should sleep. I'm going to go to bed. <laughs> <laughs>